the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, why are some people calling this the most angry time of the year? And then we're joined by Tyler Huckabee, Senior Editor at Relevant Magazine. You're listening to The Common Good. Tuesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope that you're having a great day. Glad that you're spending some time with us on this Tuesday. Aubrey, happy Tuesday. How are you doing today? Oh, thank you for asking. I'm doing well this Tuesday afternoon. What about you, Brian? Wonderful, wonderful. Just enjoying the day. We are inching closer to Christmas. I woke my daughter up, one of my daughters up this morning going, four more days and then it's break. Three more, you know, kind of the, the <laughs> so uh, fun. I love the countdown. countdown. Yep, yep, yep. And so, so fun. Uh, yeah, looking forward to Christmas. Still haven't bought all my wife's gifts yet, but I, I think that Brian, might be on the docket for that, tonight. Dude. I think okay. I got things to do, Aubrey. Come on. No, there's... no, you don't. You have nothing else to do except shop for your wife. Oh, that is a unfortunately a very valid point. But Aubrey, I do want to start. Uh, let's start COVID. We're now what? Have you heard of COVID? Are, are you familiar? Uh, yeah. I mean, this, the term sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> it's now reached the point where you're like, I don't remember when this wasn't a part of our life going <laughs> Seriously, on. Seriously, no, going, yes, of course I know COVID. I've told this story before, but in January of 2020, uh, it was my wife and I's 20th anniversary, wedding anniversary, and we we splurged on a big trip. Like we hadn't done this in 20 Fun. years. We went, we went to Mexico, stayed in an all-inclusive resort, no nice. children. It was a nice. wonderful once in a lifetime, you know, uh, kind of excursion. Uh, coming back through O'Hare that day, my wife turned to me and said, have you heard about this whole coronavirus thing? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yep. And then there were signs up. That was the start of the rest of our lives right yep. there at O'Hare That's Airport. Right. But uh, we're going on two years. And I know people who are listening to this have very, very uh, different opinions about COVID and where we're at right now. And that's kind of what I want to jump into. There were two very interesting articles. Let me start with the one out of Religion News. It says this, uh, it's the most angry time of year. And mm. why is that? It says a new survey highlights just how angry vaccinated and unvaccinated Americans are wow. with each other. And so it gets into the survey, but let me just sum it up this way, Aubrey. It's saying this. That what we're finding is increasingly what the numbers are telling us is you have two sets of people in our country right now. You have vaccinated people. You have unvaccinated people. And there is not an uh, we're going to agree to disagree about this. But there is animosity. There is Mm. a lot of anger. So here's the statistics. A new survey found. Uh, that a remarkable number of Americans reporting serious family conflict over COVID-19 vaccinations. Right. One in five Americans say disagreements over COVID-19 vaccinations have caused, quote, major conflict in their fam- families. Mm-hmm. Similarly, 
Uh, 22% of Americans reported their extended family relationships have been, quote, strained to the breaking point over the issue of getting a COVID-19 vaccine. Sadly, Aubrey, I would say that these don't surprise me. Um, But as we go into the Christmas holiday seasons, there's probably people people listening right now going, totally get that. Right. I, I don't have a sophisticated question. I, I, the question is this. What do you do with these numbers? It seems like <laughs> anger is running rampant in our culture yeah. right now, specifically over COVID. Oh, I mean, it, you know, it's like I feel like there's layers to the anger, too, because some of it is just like unprocessed emotion from the pandemic, I think, and from the trauma of it. So I think there's that. And then on top of that is this whole like vaxxed, anti-vaxxed or unvaxxed war Right. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think it's really, I'm surprised it's still as big of a deal this year as it was last year. Like last year, I know people were still trying to figure things out. And can we be around people who are vaccinated? Can we be around people who are unvaccinated? I don't know. This feels complicated. Maybe we'll just avoid each other and do a social distance holiday. This year, I, I sort of feel like, look, if you're vaccinated, then you got to like sort of trust that it's okay to be around people who aren't. And if you're unvaccinated, it doesn't really harm you to be around people who are. Why can't we be together? But that's very idealistic because, again, there's layers to this, like I said. So what do we do? Again, I think part of what has happened is the distance has caused us to begin to tell little stories about each other and Mm. to, like, vilify people who are actually our loved ones. But I actually think coming together and maybe just of you know just like being cordial having small talk <laughs> yes. being kind like perhaps some of that could help bridge some of these massive divides don't maybe don't bring up vaccines but just like start with like a a small Christmas dessert together or something cr- like that. I don't know. It feels crazy though, Brian. Maybe the old saying absence makes the heart grow fonder is not actually true I as it, as it does this. Yes. Uh, layered on top of this is a generational conflict. And that is uh, at the Atlantic, we read this Gen Z, which is like your mid twenties kind of ages. Gen Z is quote done with the pandemic. Mm, Though the specter okay. of a new variant hangs over the holidays, young people have no plans to lock themselves down again. Sure. Uh, let me read you just this one quote from Jacob, a 23-year-old living in Baltimore. He said this, to be honest, if anything, I feel like I fall into the mindset of I'm vaccinated. So I'm just going to like do me. <laughs> like I'm just going <laughs> to go about life. Yeah. Uh, it, Here's Aubrey. I always tell you, I always feel old, but I think I agree with the Gen Z people here. This is kind of where I'm at. Like, listen, we just can't keep doing this. You and I have kids in high school and junior high. You've got one in elementary school, and there is. I think you mentioned this earlier. Like you said, I, I, I'm surprised it's still like this. I actually think it's worse now because people were like, all right, I'm willing to do this in 2020, but I can't keep doing it. I can't this. keep going. Like at I some can't. point, life has to get back to normal. Yeah. So let, let's spin this, Aubrey, to Christians. Let's spin this to those of us. Uh, I know a lot of Christians, people in my church, outside my church, who have really strong opinions. And then we read that survey that says anger is on the rise. What is our role, specifically the role of the Christ follower, when it comes to living in a culture that's increasingly angry, increasingly divided? What What do you think? Should we be part of the loud, like, nope, we got to stand up to this, this is this, or should we be peacemakers in some way, a little bit of both? How do we wrestle with this as churches? I mean, I I think we are called to be peacemakers, period. Like, Mm. that's not – I mean, we are 
we are called to like bring shalom here, God shalom here to earth. So I don't think that's really up for debate. I think what is peacemaking is ultimately the question because like mm. peacemaking is not the absence of conflict. It really is like working through conflict in a healthy way that brings wholeness, that brings true peace, that brings unity. Because I sometimes we think, oh, we just avoid conflict. We're at peace. Well, no, because then there's stuff brewing under the surface. We have to be able to, with honor and with dignity, address the things that cause us to disagree and somehow find a way forward through them. And I'm not even saying that means you convince someone on the quote unquote other side of your belief or vice versa, but somehow we just learn to like put the other person first, right? Mm. Like that's what love is, right? And it's just feels like we've forgotten all of this and it's crazy making, Brian. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I feel like I'm talking to like mature Christian people that I know and I've had conversations with and they are like, we will absolutely not come to church because of, you know, X, Y, Z, masked or unmasked, whatever it is, vaxxed, unvaxxed, whatever it is. And I'm like, okay, so really you're going to stay away from your Christian community because of this. Does that honor God? Is that mm. the way of Jesus? No, I don't know what's happening, Brian. I, I going back to the Gen Z thing though. I get it. I mean, I feel a little like I'm done too. At the same time, that doesn't mean, and we still have to honor other people. Right. So I, oh, I don't know. Can we just like be nice? That feels so, <laughs> like the 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 bar feels so low right now. Like just be nice. I think it's the new tagline for our show because I kind of feel like you and I try to always walk both and be like, well, we understand you. We understand. Yeah, it yeah. should be the common good. Can we just be nice? <laughs> Can we just be nice? That's all. That's all we're asking for. Because social media adds to this. It's just. It, it is, and it's tiring, right? We're going on two years now, and people are all over the board on this. I do think there's a role for us as Christians within the larger culture right now, within our church cultures, but even within the larger culture, like you said, to be bridges, be peacemakers. Um, yeah, try not to be tearing people down as we have opinions. We're, we're never told not to have opinions. Right, right. Uh, but it's how do we uh, live with those? And so uh, hopefully family will be good for you this Christmas. Uh, this survey says that for some of you out there, this is going to be a difficult time, uh, but hopefully not necessarily just divided over COVID yeah. and vaccines. Well, Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined. Uh, by a regular on the show here, a friend of the show. He is senior editor at Relevant Magazine. He is Tyler Huckabee. Tyler, how are you doing today, friend? Hey, I'm doing so good. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's good to be here. I'm feeling Merry very Christmas. festive today. It's good to be here. Well, uh, that's what we like to hear. Uh, glad that you're festive. Normally, Tyler, we have you introduce yourself, but people know you by now. So let's do this. Introduce <laughs> Relevant Magazine. Tell us about oh, Relevant sure. Magazine and how people can access it. Yeah, Relevant Magazine, uh, relevantmagazine.com is a site that's been around for, well, let's see, I think it launched in 2003 now. And uh, our beat is the intersection of faith and culture. So we write about what's happening in, uh, in pop culture that can be film, that can be television, that can be movies, and where it intersects with Christianity, with mm. faith, that can be uh, explicitly through these things when these things actually talk about God or, or faith or Jesus, whether positively or negatively. We try to engage with that. Or it can be about things that we consider to be Christian, even if they're not explicitly so. Things like uh, important issues, justice issues in the world, or, mm. or just more awareness of the world around us than, that we find kind of have uh, an interesting space in the entertainment industry. So that's what we try to do at Relevant. 
I love that. And okay, so Tyler, you said you're feeling festive. We're feeling festive here at yeah. the Comic Good. And I love, I don't know why I love this so much. Well, I think I know why, but you wrote an article called No, Christmas Trees Don't Have, quote, Pagan Roots. I love this <laughs> because I hear this all the time. Yeah. I don't know why Christians are obsessed with saying this. But I'm yeah. so excited you wrote this article. So tell us all things Christmas trees. <laughs> sure. So I'm I'm totally with I heard this my whole life. Like the Christmas tree got its start as sort of this like, you know, ancient prehistoric pagan festival that Christians just sort of appropriated over time, mm-hmm. turned into their own thing. And I never had any reason to doubt it. I just kinda, you know, that seemed fair like, okay, I guess that's how it happened. And it wasn't until one day that I just kind of started to question it like I wonder why, is that really true? I've, I've always heard that, but I never looked into it. And when I did start looking into it and I interviewed a few historians, I realized that historians really, uh, like, I would say tear their hair out around this idea because it's just not that there's no historical basis, no matter how many times you read it in major publications, there's just no real reason to think that the Christmas tree as we think of it today is anything other than a actually fairly recent christian christmas tradition Hmm. um it it started it's if you want to know the the actual reasons behind it how it actually came it came from this not particularly obscure religious group called the lutherans i think people (laughs) listening to this may have heard of of them uh the first the first real example we can find of anything that we might call a christmas tree is from 1576 in mm. France. It's a there, there's a they found a sculpture there of an evergreen that appears to be part of a Christmas celebration. And there's the thinking here is that maybe originally they were trying to tie in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the Christmas celebration, sort of like the beginning, like the fall with the redemption with Jesus Christ's birth here on earth. That may have been sort of the theological origins of it, which is obviously an extremely Christian belief. Right. Uh, it got very popular in germany among the lutherans especially among the sort of like wealthier well-to-do lutherans would bring in these trees they decorated them with nuts and berries they tried it they experimented apparently with putting lit candles on the tree that <laughs> didn't really take off for reasons that you can probably guess and uh, then the royal family in great britain popularized it they got wind of this and it became a very big deal in the british kingdom and then when germans started immigrating over to the united states it came here as well so that's the real origin of it anything else that would imply some sort of pagan myth or pagan festival that used to be a part of is according to the historians that i spoke to a real reach yeah that uh, is I, so fascinating i was Go just ahead, explaining to my kids the other day that people used to put candles on trees and they looked at me like what <laughs> that seems like a terrible <laughs> idea yeah. uh, uh, but let's stick with the christmas theme here tyler and this wasn't sure. part of your article but i'd love to expand this uh, Aubrey and I have talked about this before. I'm 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 very pro Santa, right? I got kids yeah. uh, that they've kind of grown out of it. Again, if you're listening with little kids, now might be the time to turn it. But um, <laughs> so a lot we hear a lot of the same things from people in churches about Santa, right? Like, should we worry about? Uh-huh. I'm just curious. What do you think? I know this wasn't the point of your article, so I'm kind of no, ju- no, dumping no. this on you. But what do you think about that? Kind of along the same vein. Sure, I get I get a little bit. I, I tread here lightly because I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have to. That's not something that I have to worry too much about. But 
I, I really I like the idea of of Christmas traditions, and I like I like the idea of Santa Claus too. And I think that there's something very fun and festive about promoting. Since we know that Christmas time wasn't the actual like literal birthday of Jesus Christ, but it's a time that we observe the birth of Jesus Christ. I kind of like the idea that we bring in other ideas of generosity and goodwill and cheer into that idea. And I think that that bringing Santa, making Santa a part of that, can be just a really fun way to acknowledge it. And kids. I think kids are smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. Most kids, at least in my case, you know, I heard about Santa. In the back of my mind, I was always kind of like, that's probably not exactly how it works, but it's fun to believe for now. And uh, as long as your kid's not like not buying into this well into their teens or so, I really don't <laughs> see a lot of harm in it. And I really don't see why this very fun idea of this fanciful mythical creature named Santa Claus can't live next to the birth of our very real Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that's well put. I think that's well put. Uh, all right. Let me ask you this one. Let's move to a sure. different article that you wrote. Uh, and Aubrey and I actually discussed this the other day, this fascinating oh. um idea that the number one fastest growing Bible search term in 2021 oh. was the word for sorcery. And I, uh -huh. neither of us, we played a game or we tried to guess what it was. As you could guess, we were not right. <laughs> but can you explain <laughs> the background of this? And then also, what, what do you think is going on there? Sure. I, I would have never guessed why as well, but uh, you've, you're probably familiar with Bible Gateway, the mm -hmm. uh, the website that clocks the, uh, you know, it, it just kind of, it's a database for biblical search terms. And every year they put out the most searched words in uh, of, of the year. And these are usually pretty much the same things, love, grace, John 316, stuff like that. But the fastest growing term, as you noted, was the word sorcery. This, mm. The searches for this term were up 193% over 2020. And the reason for that is not what I thought, which is sort of like a boom in witchcraft in the US or Doctor Strange <laughs> yes, or anything yes. like that. No, it, it actually has to do with a with what I would call a conspiracy theory about the Bible. And it, we, we need to understand the ancient Greek here a little bit. It's the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakeia. Mm. And, uh, and according to the, this is from the Mount's Concise Greek English Dictionary of the New Testament, the definition of pharmakeia is employment of drugs for any purpose, oh. sorcery, mm. magic, enchantment. So as you can imagine, this kind of took hold in some, I would say, conspiratorial, maybe extremist corners of the internet that linked this to vaccines. Right. Thinking that what the Bible is really cautioning against here is not magic, witchcraft, and sorcery, but using any, you can even hear it in pharmakeia, pharmakeia, pharmacy, right. that's kind of the linchpin of the argument. This is just not the case. This is not, no biblical scholar believes that there's any sort of link between modern medicine and, and this word, but on Facebook, on Instagram, some memes, and obviously with the very politicized debate around the vaccine, it got very linked to this and unfortunately became sort of a mainstream idea. Some pretty prominent, uh, unfortunately prominent Christian accounts yeah. started passing this around as if it was a fact. But but uh, I, I talked to both Christian scholars and to some Wiccan scholars, some witchcraft scholars, and uh, they were all in agreement that that, mm. is, that is not a correct interpretation of this word. Awesome. Well, that is why it's cool to be a reporter, right? I talked to Christian scholars and some Wiccan scholars. <laughs> that makes for a good day. Again, Tyler Huckabee is the senior editor at Relevant Magazine. Well, Tyler, I want to jump into a, um, a kind of a deeper, kind of heavier topic. And you wrote on it mm -hmm. uh, a week or so ago. Uh, anyone who's on Twitter, Christian Twitter these days, or following what's going on, this idea of deconstruction sure. uh, is such a big one right now. 
And uh, you wrote an article entitled A Reminder, Deconstruction Does Not Mean Deconversion. And so you're mm-hmm. wanting to kind of differentiate between the two. Love to ask you two questions. Why did you write the article? Kind of what do you see going on? And then help us understand the difference between deconstruction and deconversion. Sure. So the impetus for writing this article, and and I've honestly written versions of this article in the past because this does come up a lot, Mm -hmm. is a confusion, I think, around what this word actually means. I I think as deconstruction has become popular, sort of mainstreamed in Christian conversations, it has been unfortunately simplified and lost a lot of the nuance that the word originally had. Hmm. When people hear deconstruction, they get very nervous around it. They, Mm -hmm. They assume that means you know, a walking away from the faith or, right. or a conversion to a, something very, very different. And, and truth be told, it can mean that in the, in the academic world, that, that is part of it, but it certainly doesn't have to be. And it, I would say it isn't even usually that. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that we are all sort of talking about the same thing when we talk mm-hmm. about deconstruction, because it is an important conversation. So we need to make sure that we're using the same language, using the same vocabulary to talk about the same things. In my estimation, and the estimation of the experts that I've talked to about this, deconstruction is really just taking a look at what you actually believe, the, the ideas that you originally, when you first become a Christian or when you become really any belief system, you construct something. Usually you're handed something by pastor, a faith leader, your parents, you're building this framework for what you believe. And then at some point in your life, you have some questions, maybe some doubts, maybe some tensions, maybe there's a... a uh, you perceive some sort of conflict in the text between what how you're living and what you actually think about it. And so that process is called deconstruction. It's pulling these things apart to actually look at them and think about what is, is this, is this real? Do I believe this or do I just believe it because my parents believed it? Because I've always been told this is true. It can be a very, very painful process. It can be a very lonely process. It can be a scary process because a lot of times, unfortunately, in Christian circles, people are people get nervous around it and they're like well don't don't start asking too many questions because that leads to trouble and so it can feel like you're doing something wrong by Mm. even asking these things of Mm -hmm. yourself but the deconstruction process doesn't have to be scary it it doesn't have to be lonely either in fact i would highly recommend that anybody who feels like they're going through this look for a community find somebody else who can walk with you through this and can Mm -hmm. be a part of this process and instead of it being the end or a deconversion it can really just be a new beginning the first step in a much deeper, richer, more honestly felt uh, belief uh, in God and and in what you uh, what you hold to be true about the spiritual world. Mm, that's that's such a good nuance, Tyler. Thank you for that because I I do think we you know Brian said this and you said it. We do tend to assume deconstruction means deconversion, but perhaps there's actually some beautiful things that's happening in the deconstruction process that all of us need to learn from. So I I really appreciate that. I'm going to jump for just a minute. You wrote an article. This was about Thanksgiving, but I think this is applicable really for all holidays, but let's think Christmas. How do we survive (laughs) family holidays? And this is very real. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about family pain 
this time of year. So talk to us, Tyler. How do we survive Christmas with our families? <laughs> Help me. Well, good luck. No, I really feel for people who are going home to, uh, to difficult situations with family members. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of very, we're, we're pretty divided, and that includes people that we really love and care about. It can be hard to go back to these people over the holidays. But if you're going to do it, then uh, then I do have a few. I put a piece together with a few different recommendations for things that I've found have helped me in these difficult conversations. And this is not to say that I have a particularly difficult relationship with my mom and dad who are probably listening and, and are <laughs> looking forward to seeing them very much at Christmas. But I do think that there has been sort of an unfortunate in some spaces idea that we, if we're around our family members, we need to be working on converting them to our ideology, mm. that, uh, that family is the best place to host a debate about politics or cultural issues or social issues. And I just don't think that's the case. I, I find that that's a very poor, you, you have a limited amount of time and energy for debating important issues. And, and I think that arguing a family is one of the worst spaces you can spend that because yeah. of those conversations can get so divisive and so hurtful. I would, there, obviously there are times where you need to speak up around important issues that may actually be painful and offensive issues of, uh, of race or uh, mm -hmm. of certain gender issues that you may need to feel a need to actually get involved in. But when it comes to actually just, you know, simple political stuff, I would say donate to a charity that's doing good work and a cause that you care about and just try to talk about movies and stuff at home. You, don't need <laughs> to, you really don't need, this is not, this is not, we need to be a battle zone. And the more you can present a, an attitude of peace and charity in your home and of diverting away from thorny conversations uh, and demonstrating an attitude of love and affection, then I think that'll do far more yeah. for the actual cause that you care about yeah. than trying to win a debate around them. Good. That's good. All right, Tyler, I'm gonna, looking into your crystal ball here. This this will be a yeah. difficult one. Uh, we're okay. about to move into 2022. So, yeah. you know, when we interview you again at this time next year, <laughs> what are you what do you think are going to be the things that you've spent the most time writing about? What do you see oh, coming uh, down the pike in 2022? A lot of the same different things. What do you think is uh, ahead of us here? Oh, it's going to be such a good question. Well, we're going to be this time next year, we'll be just on the other end of midterms, which will obviously, I'm sure that'll go just really well. Um, <laughs> so, so there will be that. You know, I, I think, and this is you're maybe just because I've been thinking about this a lot today, and, and I feel terribly for uh for any everybody who suffered in the tornadoes that took place yeah. just a couple of weeks ago yeah. they came through here my home in tennessee no, they didn't literally come through my home i'm fine but they came through my state and, mm -hmm. and obviously the people in kentucky who suffered so much tragedy and the the workers in amazon who had the collapse and i do right. think that we are going to start facing sort of a reckoning for the way that we have been treating uh, people who work in these spaces, people mm. who work in oftentimes low paying jobs like Amazon warehouses, a lot of our essential workers, as we've called them, people who had to work throughout the pandemic. And uh, we're, I think we're starting to face a reckoning of how poorly they've been treated, sometimes by their employers, sometimes by the government. And start, I think, a really, really cool thing that the church and Christians could be on the front end of is starting to advocate to mm. treat these people better, to mm. have more protections in place 
place for them to make sure that they're paid well and they have time to go home and be with their families. I think mm. that's a conversation we're going to start seeing a lot more of. And it'd be one that would be so cool to see Christians instead of sometimes kind of bringing up the rear of these conversations, yeah. taking a lead on it. I'd love to see that happen. I hope it does. Cool. That's cool. You, you, great. You did depress me a little bit there. I forgot that there were midterm elections next year. We got we got we got a, almost a whole year ahead of us for to worry about that. Coming. Well, Tyler Arkaby <laughs> is senior editor at Relevant Magazine. We also did talk with you know, Aubrey wants to talk later about the Cape Town podcast. We'll get back into oh, that course. one another yep. time. Next time. Uh, but Tyler, it's always fun to have you on. Have a Merry Christmas, man. We'll talk to Thank you in the you. new year at some point. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. You as well. All right, Brian, you're a pastor. I am. So are so you. you uh, yes, so am I. So you preach the gospel, I would say. I would hope. I, I, I try to. Yes, that is the purpose. Okay. What if I told you that um, Scott McKnight, friend who's been on the show before, someone we talk about regularly, um, along with uh, David Fitch, says that there are six gospels of American churches right now? Hmm. Yeah, I would be intrigued. Yes. Uh, I would also go, well, I think there's, you know, I, I'd, um, I, I would use it as a chance to go, okay, what am I preaching? Because I feel like I preach the gospel, mm-hmm. right? Like I feel like our goal is uh, to proclaim the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, What the, how that transforms our lives, the offer of salvation that comes from that, that death has now been defeated. Like I, I feel like that's the gospel. So for them to be like, hey, there's some, He's not saying there should be six Gospels, but he's saying uh, that, that we as Americans tend to speak of the Gospel in different ways, and they've, they've categorized six, which I think is really fascinating. Because as I said, uh, yeah, I'd love to know what you think about this, because like I've said, I kind of think like there's a Gospel, and we proclaim it on a weekly basis. And we, we, uh, you know, we talk about being a Gospel-centered church and, and wanting people to yeah. fully grasp the Gospel. And so uh, I think it's an interesting nuance here. What do you think? My guess is, before we dive into this, is that um, these are actually different atonement theories. So they're different um, things that make up a robust gospel, like, and, uh, you know, different parts of what it, what salvation in Jesus actually mean. And so they're calling them six gospels. That might be true. Like churches are preaching different gospels. I actually think churches are preaching different atonement theories mm. or different salvation theories, different soteriology theories. And if we put them together, I think what we're going to find is probably a beautiful holistic gospel. Um, but let's unpack what these six gospels are according to David Fitch and um, according to Scott McKnight, who was really quoting David Fitch. So he talks about how this is when many of us will be familiar with the, the Billy Graham gospel. This would be big time, like justification atonement theory that we have a sin problem, the provision of Jesus Christ, the human response, justification by faith. That's the Billy Graham gospel, Mm -hmm. which a lot of us, that's when we talk, when we speak of the gospel, uh, that's probably what most of us are preaching. What yeah, most yeah. Of us... most, I would say that's very true in like white evangelical America. That's very true. Yes, yes. Then, he even um, says social activism, which is going to come up here in a later one. Uh, the kingdom is mostly future, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. The social activism is a doorway to evangelism. Like we reach out so that we can share the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christ is at work in the church, not so much in society. So we have to get into there. So I think this is the one most of us have been raised with, uh, I, I, the Billy Graham gospel, as they call it. The next yeah, I one. Think that's so funny that that's what they call it. Go yeah, ahead, exactly. Brian. The next one's the social gospel, he says. Uh, the kingdom at work now is, quote, humanity organized 
organized according to the will of God. Kingdom and reconstituting the social order belong together. The problem is systemic sin in the social order. The kingdom reveals the sins, frees people, and proclaims a God who is at work to disrupt these systems uh, to bring justice. Democracy then is a kingdom order. So it's a social gospel. It's how do we make things right here? Uh, how do we get rid of the systemic problems? So it's different. You can kind of see how that's different than what he called the Billy Graham gospel. Yeah, this is sort of like what it means to be like um, uh, working for the kingdom of God is to make a difference on earth now. Yeah. Yeah, Rather yeah. than it just being in the future, as opposed to the Billy Graham gospel, the liberation gospel in other circles, this is known as Christus Victor. This is that the kingdom liberates from system systemic oppression, all that enslaves the marginalized. So the gospel takes the previous into the world of the marginalized and shifts it from democracy and progress to God at work among and present with the poor. So this is a lot of justification for the poor. This is a lot of God victorious, Jesus victorious over anything that oppresses. That does mean earthly systems. I would add that that also means like demonic systems. That means mm -hmm. death. That means evil. Yeah. The next one, and, and McKnight makes a point that this is David Fitch's background, the fourfold gospel. Uh, that is this, Jesus is Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. Isaiah 53 is crucial along with Matthew 8. Uh, so he says, uh, the formation for mission works into individual but holistic whole salvation and not just the soul. It is a body and soul. Uh, it can be much more tied to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's work in the world. So they want to see Jesus as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King. And then that defines what we do now uh, here on earth. So they call that the fourfold gospel. Okay. And the next one, this is one I've never heard of, and it looks like Scott McKnight hasn't either. This is called the good gospel. This is where evangelicalism or the Billy Graham gospel is breaking free of like fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And instead it's that, it's that group of neo-Calvinists, right? That we hear from. And I guess this is, I'm not exactly sure where they land, but something about the world being framed more positively that we see God at work in the world now for the common good. Well, well, there you go. He let, I, that's interesting because I have also never heard that, but he he like he links this to Keller, Russell Moore, um, and and some others people who we say, yeah, I'm 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 on board with those people. Uh, King Jesus Gospel. If you've ever read McKnight, this is McKnight's bread and butter. Yeah, uh, covenantal justification is more expansive than in the Billy Graham model. Uh, for the King Jesus gospel, it moves toward God's faithfulness to the promises through Israel for the world as God sends Christ for the kingdom to make the world right. That is a world in disorder, a false rule, and a false narrative. Salvation, then, is to enter into God's kingdom redemption and not just one's personal salvation. A kingdom is connect when connected to church, as McKnight does in Kingdom Conspiracy, reshapes the mission implication. And so, uh, I, Aubrey, there's this, this idea that, yes, there's personal justification, but we're entering into the kingdom, God's kingdom work uh, yeah. on this earth now, right? We are, we are, we have a, we have a mission yes. and a work now. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of this has to do with, is the gospel individualistic? Is it communal? Right. Is the Does work it make a now? difference now or is it only for eternity or in heaven one Correct. day? Right, Correct. Right. Is it all future focused? And I, there's nitpicking, not even nitpicking. There's, there's some stuff to be done with each of these. There's some critiques to each of these. But on a grand scale, I would say each of these helps. I don't think it has to be like, hey, I go for number one. 
right? I um, go from the, right. There's a context. Is is the gospel future looking or is it present? The answer is yes. Is it individual? Right. Is it communal? The answer is yes. So this yes. is really helpful to go. It's not that there's one and five of these are heretical, but to instead go, what is the what, when we use the word gospel? When we talk about mm-hmm. good news, let's really flesh that out. For that reason, I find this super helpful. Yeah, I, I think this is really helpful also, and I'll, I'll just end with this, because I do think sometimes there's there's a narrative right now in church culture that will say, oh, no, no, that's a social gospel. I reject that. Or, oh, mm-hmm. no, no, that's mm-hmm. a whatever gospel. I reject that. I think let's be really careful at at rejecting something just because it's not the quote unquote Billy Graham gospel, just because it's right. not justification and atonement theory. That's really important. That is certainly a, a very important aspect. You know, all of Romans is about that. It's a very important aspect of our gospel. It's not the whole gospel. Like, mm-hmm. the, like you were saying, the gospel is this is already and not yet. The gospel is personal salvation and communal change. Like there is so much. I think the gospel is richer and more beautiful than we often want to give it credit to. So I think instead of just being like, I reject that, let's let's maybe open our our hands and our eyes to what the Bible actually says and see where we can find a more beautiful, more robust, more robust gospel overall. Word. This time of year, we know, can bring up painful memories and painful emotions. I I don't know why specifically the holidays, something about all of the, I guess, all of the meaning and all of the marking and all of the celebrations around it. It can bring up some painful stuff. And I think a question for a lot of us is, what am I supposed to do with all the painful memories I'm carrying this Christmas? Brian, um... I don't know if you've got someone coming to you as a your pastor. They're coming to you as a congregant. Man, last Christmas or two Christmases ago was my divorce, or was mm. when I got the diagnosis, or I lost my job. I I don't know how to I don't know how to hold that this Christmas season. What kind of words of encouragement would you bring to them? Yeah, I, I would first want to say it's hard. Like I don't want to minimize yeah. – not like, as opposed to be like, oh, it's Christmas. You should be happy, right? <laughs> right. Because you're right. Christmas time or holidays, um, you know, they really accentuate the joy and they accentuate what's going good. But, but they also accentuate the bad. They also accentuate right. the struggle and just make it more real for people and they're more faced with it. And I'd also want to tell that person, listen. I know it feels like everybody else is happy. It's not true. Yeah, that's uh, good. You're not – because I think there's a loneliness factor that says, am I the only one who's not feeling joyful right now? Am I the right. only one struggling? When in reality, it's probably heightened for all sorts of people. And, and uh, you know, I think another reason is that this is a time where you're supposed to be with family, where you're supposed to be excited about being with your family, where you're – and it just isn't the case for a lot of people. Like uh, – I'm just surprised, Aubrey, by how many people in my life have a really complicated family and extended family. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised by that, but you. I know that's you, starting to feel like the norm instead of the surprise. Yeah. Isn't it? I yeah. hear of all sorts of people who are like, yeah, I'm not going to be seeing this member of my family, or I'm not going to be. And you're just like, oh, that's. That's hard. Like, that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would want to empathize with that person coming to me. I'd want to tell them, hey, um, I, it's, it's, that's awful. Like that's bad. And I'm sorry yeah, that yeah. life is that way, but let's talk about maybe, um, what you can do about that. Or let's talk about where there is joy in your life. Yeah. Or let's talk about, 
you know, steps towards so that next Christmas is a little bit better. I, I would want to go down that road. Like I would want to start to talk about a solution, but I mm-hmm. wouldn't want to start at the solution. I would want to start with empathy and go, yeah, yeah. that stinks. That's really hard. Right. It's, it's really, really hard that really you've hard. lost a person or that you mm-hmm. have a broken relationship or that you got the whatever else it might be. I, I think we always have to start with empathy. Absolutely. Uh, and, and then we could talk about, hey, like, how can I help you? Like, what, yeah. what can be a solution? How about you? I know you've got people coming to you. Well, you know, I, I'm actually bringing this up because there is an interesting aspect of this that Lisa Turker, she was over at Relevant Magazine um, sharing about what to do with painful memories, but she's being really practical. Like the question, like, what do I do? She's actually like, okay, you've got mementos around your house. You've got pictures around your house. Maybe it's a marriage that ended, or maybe it's someone who passed away, or maybe it's just someone who like really hurt you. What are you supposed to do with like these actual physical reminders? And I think that's another layer that sometimes we don't even think about. Like there are Christmas ornaments that come out that, you know, remind you of memories of vacations, of, of, uh, you know, anniversaries. And then there are photographs, of course. And some of these things that are meant to bring up like nostalgia and warm feelings and delight actually just end up bringing up bitterness Mm. or grief. And what Lisa Turker says, she's uh, the founder and the woman who runs Proverbs 31 uh, ministry. She says that memories that were once sweet only serve to widen the chasm between what was and what is. And what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to go through our homes and throw everything out? Right. Is it possible to enjoy a season that's supposed to be full of cheer? She talks about her own marriage. It was imploding around the holiday seasons. And she went through the entire house and removed all pictures of her and her husband. Now they're still married. Now they were able to reconcile, which is an amazing story, but they, I mean, they announced publicly they were divorcing. That was the end. Really? I didn't Um, know that. Yeah. And she talks about how she tried to really like physically remove every reminder, but that that didn't actually remove the pain. Mm. And so ultimately I think drawing on what she says, what I would say to somebody is look, I, this, like you said, this is really, really hard and there are some of those mementos that perhaps it is better for you to let go of because mm. they're keeping you maybe in an unhealthy way attached to someone in your past that you don't need to be attached to. And so if you are ready, um, it is okay to let go of things that bring you bitterness and that bring you, you know, just make you feel toxic and doesn't feel life-giving. But I also think just because it causes you pain doesn't mean you have to get rid of it. Mm. So perhaps if there are memories or ornaments or pictures, you put them aside for a time and come back and revisit them when you're ready. Or you consider maybe it's worth holding on to because this was a part of my life. It has made me who I am today, even if it was hard. And therefore, I'm going to keep it. Or there are things that you're just like, nope. This has no space in my life. I don't want to hear anymore. I'm letting go. And I'm not saying that's easy. But um, what I am saying is that's a that's a part of the Christmas season that not everybody thinks about. And so mm-hmm. if it's hard for you, if those things are difficult for you, listener, I, I think be kind to yourself ultimately is the word. Um, know, like Brian said, that so many families are going through such excruciating things this time of year. And um, what I'll just read what Lisa says at the end of her article, because I think this is, is worth sharing with you. She says, I know this isn't easy, sweet friend, 
But let's ask the Lord to help us stop giving pain permission to rewrite all of our memories. And let's decide today that we don't want to let pain ruin our future either. Mm. So perhaps there's an invitation for you this time of year to, to um, not let pain have the final word, mm-hmm. simultaneously honor your pain. Yeah, that's really well put. I think the there's also the opportunity to make new memories, right? Mm, like to, I like to that. not do what you used to do. Like if yeah. if the painful, you know, if if doing Christmas the way that you've always done it is a is a triggering of pain and maybe loss or whatever else, what what maybe could be a new memory that you can make with your friends or your family? Uh, or yourself that says, you know what, kind of closing the chapter there. It's kind of what Lisa Turker said by simply removing pictures, right? But also, you know what, if we always went to this restaurant and now – that's going to, well, maybe not go to that restaurant again or whatever. That's a, that's kind of a dumb example, but no, but that's a great what, example. Right. What are new, new memories you can create over the Christmas season or Thanksgiving time or whatever else that says, okay, um, I'm still going to mourn the loss of that relationship, that person, yeah. whatever else. But now I'm kind of, I'm kind of closing that door when I'm ready, I'm closing that door and I'm mm-hmm. going to start making new memories so that maybe over time Christmas can be a happier time. It could be a more joyful yeah. time. It could be yeah. uh, something. And then I would, you know, pastorally, I would want you all to know uh, that Jesus has promised us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. So mm, if you're dealing with loss, yeah. if you're dealing with abandonment, if you're dealing with mm. whatever else it might be, uh, we can uh, we can hold on to that hope. And no, at no better yeah. time do we know that at Christmas. You know, he came mm-hmm. as Emmanuel, God with us, and and we can hold on to that. And so hopefully that provides some comfort and some some strength, even in the midst of, you know, maybe your life crumbling around you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Brian. That's a really good pastoral word for all of us. I would also just add one quick thing. We've talked a lot about like people who have hurt you, but perhaps it's someone you lost. I'm thinking of my own mother-in-law this Christmas. Maybe there's something special you can do to honor their memory. If they loved lanterns, buy yourself a sweet lantern. If, If they loved a certain like Christmas cookie, make yourself that Christmas cookie. Like there are, you don't have to pretend like you're not in pain, but you can honor that person that you missed and and maybe even create some new traditions, new memories, like you said, Brian, in their honor. I think that's something to look forward to this Christmas season as well. And it's the end of the show. Yes, it is. Which means we get to do some of our favorite things that is encouraging you, inspiring you, challenging you. Today, we're going all encourage because we're going to share with you some good news from one of our favorite websites, thegoodnewsnetwork.org. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. And uh, we decided, you know, in in a theme with this time of year, we are sharing good news Christmas stories That's right. That's with right. you. So I've got one, Brian. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Go. Lead us off. Okay. All right. Brits. Those in Britain, Great <laughs> Thank Britain, you for the clarification. just in case you are curious, not just, not just people named Brit, Great Britain people reveal their best loved holiday traditions like Christmas jumpers on Boxing Day. Mm. That's very, that's not an American title at all. None of those words are American. Okay, here we go. Brits have revealed their best loved Christmas traditions, including watch if, watching festive films, wearing Christmas jumpers, which is Christmas sweaters, by the way. And tucking into turkey sandwiches on Boxing Day. Hmm. A survey of 2,000 adults found Christmas dinner to be the top tradition over the festive period while listening to Christmas songs. And putting a mince pie out for Santa on Christmas Eve was also featured in their top 20. 
I've never had a mince pie, Brian. Have you? It sounds awful. Yeah, it sounds terrible. Yes. Okay, but going to these are some things I like to do in Great Britain to celebrate Christmas. Go to a pantomime. Is that just like a miming show? I would assume I feel so. like a pantomime has to be something more than we think it is. But okay, going mm. to a pantomime, shopping in store, and going out for drinks on Christmas Eve. These okay. are among the love traditions that Brits, oh, unfortunately, now feel uncomfortable doing because of the right, lockdown, right. since the lockdown. So that's sad. Um, but other things that Brits like to do is to um, wrap their Christmas in, in more sustainable wrapping paper. Um <laughs> That's an interesting one. And they also like to give to uh, kids in need at Christmas. Hopefully that's true of many of us around the world. And then apparently they have Christmas jumper day where many of the stores have people wear Christmas sweaters. Very okay. interesting. Okay. So gotta that's what's Brits. happening. We got to go to, we got to go to England sometime well, and celebrate my, Christmas. My next story is going to keep us in the UK. Elderly Ooh, okay, couple. Okay. Elderly couple living in UK's darkest village lights up the sky with a huge Christmas tree they planted in 1978. Come on. This tremendous pine. That's what I love about the Good News Network. They do that I know. They do this that. This tremendous pine is becoming known as the little tree that could. Planted by an elderly couple long ago when it was shorter than them, it has grown more than 50 feet and provides a majestic light to a town with a little illumination on the horizon. Avril and Christopher Rollins bought the fur at a garden center shortly after moving into their home, using it as their first Christmas tree. Today, uh, it towers 43 years later over the village, the village with its 17th century pub that inspired the bull in Radio 4's The Archers. No idea what that is. Is okay. one of the darkest places in the UK as one of oh, the wow. only towns without streetlights. So that's basically the story. This is town at nighttime is really dark. And they light this tree up. Like if you could see the picture of it, it is lit up. The more picture than you is can amazing. Imagine. And so they use this at Christmas time to light up the, the kind of the dark neighborhood. Wonderful. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Okay, here's another one about Christmas lights. This one's from Florida. After raising $2.8 million to make wishes come true for sick kids, the Night of a Million Lights holiday tour is back. Okay, so Give Kids the World Village has launched their second annual Holiday Lights Extravaganza running until January 2nd, illuminating the central Florida skyline. The 52-night open house provides the public with a rare glimpse inside Give Kids the World Village, which is an 89-acre whimsical nonprofit resort that provides critically ill children with magical week-long wish vacations at no cost. And what began as an inventive pandemic pivot for Give Kids the World has evolved into Central Florida's most beloved new holiday tradition. More than 92,000 guests attended Night of a Million Lights last year. It was named by USA Today the number one thing to do in Orlando in December. That's a big thing, by the way, in a place like Orlando, right? Seriously. It's got dancing lights. It's got tram tours. It's got behind-the-scenes experiences and basically lighting up this entire town on behalf of sick Children. And That's so good. the proceeds, of course, go to benefit this um, this nonprofit organization. And again, if you That's go cool. on goodnewsnetwork.org and you look at the website, you'll see the town all lit up. And it is cool. There's a part that looks like Super Mario, um, like Brothers Mushroom and Castle. And it is very, very cool looking. Nice. So it's definitely worth going to. All right. I'm going back across the pond to the UK. Okay. 60 visitors got snowed in at a UK pub for three days. And Come they on. loved it. 
When 60 revelers went for a night in the UK's highest pub, snow drifts and a downed power line ensured that they got more time at the bar than they bargained for. Yet between an Oasis cover band, tabletop games, trivia, and sing-along Christmas carols, three whole days in which no one who entered could leave passed in holiday cheer and the guests loved every minute of that it. That is like a Hallmark movie come to life. Come it on. Is. The co-owner told CNN, they're all in good spirits. They're all eating and drinking well. Uh, Tanned Hill can be found in the area in the beautiful Yorkshire Dales in northeast England, 1,700 feet above sea level, making it the highest sitting pub in the U.K., Three roads lead up there, two of which were covered in snow drifts, and the last road was blocked by a downed power line. Some guests arrived Friday night with the intention of camping, but the storm destroyed their tents and campsite, so the staff made beds for each of them in the pub. And it turned out to be a time where new friends were made, where uh, a lot of fun was had. So people are looking back. Like you said, this is kind of a uh, Disney or a uh, Hallmark movie. I mean, that sounds so fun. I love that. Did you see the one about about people getting stranded in Ikea somewhere the other day? No. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. Not quite as fun as a pub, but that could be enjoyable. At least there's beds and furniture there. Beds and they all hung out. It sounded like a good time. (laughs) Might be fun. That's actually hilarious. Okay, here's another one. I like this one a lot, Brian. You and I might have to do this in our studio. This Christmas fanatic turned her office cube into an incredible life-sized gingerbread house. Again, if you go to goodnews.network.org, you can see all of these pictures. She turned her office cube into a life-sized gingerbread house to amuse her colleagues. She'd only been at her job for two months when they announced a workspace decorating competition, and she threw herself into the contest, spending eight hours turning her cube into a festive gingerbread wonderland. She constructed the sides and roof of the house by herself with duct tape and cardboard. She covered it in brown craft paper. She hung lights. She hung things that look like candy. Um, There's a great picture of her just sitting there at her desk. It looks so fun and festive. And she says she was at first concerned that her new colleagues might think she was like a little bit extra. (laughs) Um, But she says she pushed pushed right back. She got to planning. And... um, Anyway, they all love it. She got these extra large jolly, uh, extra large lollipops, candy stickers, and then she's giving everyone candy apparently too who comes by. So I love that. Go on goodnewsnetwork.org and look at the pictures. It's really, really cute. All right, let me give you one last one. I won't get okay, too much into this story. One. Pittsburgh Woman's Food Rescue app diverts 20 million pounds of surplus into 17 million meals. For those in need. Wow. Just let, just take that in for a second. Going with wow. the surplus to the meals. It's a, Go check out the story there. But it is just kind of a Christmas miracle, if you will. It oh, is what is, I uh, love that. It is what we do here at the Christmas season. Really good story there. Well, I love that. Well, there you have it. We hope those stories brought a little smile to your face and encouraged you this evening. Thanks so much for being here with us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.